Mark Pesci is our tech commentator, futurist. The future seems to be uh, increasingly becoming the present in so many areas of technology. Mark, good morning. Good morning. Your subject today is tech during wartime. What is the old saying about uh, the first casualty of war being truth? That goes back a few wars. But there's no (laughs) doubt the propaganda battles uh, from from whichever source uh, ramp up as quickly as, as can be. And these days, of course, much of that happens online, even trying to establish whether what you're seeing Uh, is real uh, or is lifted from a video game or footage from another event or whatever. All of this happening right now, Mark. Yeah, and there's footage from a video game called Arma 3, which shows fighters shooting down a helicopter. This footage has been recirculated for the last couple of incursions uh, in various parts of the world. It is now being recirculated in the Israeli-Hamas conflict. It is from a video game. It is not real, but people are posting it to X or to Blue Sky or to wherever saying, here's real footage. And of course, people are right now taking things in somewhat incredulously, or perhaps with not the right degree of discrimination, given that we're at the, the early stages of a fog of war. And so what we're seeing is some of the old memes are being recycled for new uses. Now, we can do something about that because we've actually built some tools that can help us detect whether things are real or not. But it turns out that one of those tools that's used a bit was uh, used to detect whether an image was generated by an AI or not. It was fed a real image, apparently, of the Israeli-Hamas conflict and stated that it was an AI-generated image, which then caused a whole bunch of social media traffic saying this image is false. So what we're seeing is that false images are being presented as true, and then true images are being basically being dismissed as false because an AI has told us that they're false. And so Both sides are now deeply under threat from indiscriminate sharing of unverified media and de-verification of authentic media. So where is this happening the most or is it happening basically (laughs) everywhere? Well, as is normal with these things, Catherine, X is definitely leading the way. The network formerly known as Twitter, you know, Basically, within the first 24 hours, they got a very sternly worded note from the EU commissioner indicating that they were being X was being used as an indiscriminate vehicle for the promulgation of disinformation. We know for a fact, because it's well attested, that Elon Musk essentially fired almost all the fact checking and error checking staff at X and dismantled most of the technology that was used to support them. So even if they wanted to start doing it again because there is a war on and because disinformation is ramping up. They can't easily do it because the infrastructure they need to support that is now no longer part of the business. So it has been flooded, flooded with disinformation. And a lot of people I know who have been using X until this point have just run away screaming because they can't really see their way through it. And of course, in the middle of this overnight for us, uh, Elon Musk announced that he wants everyone in New Zealand to pay a dollar a year to use X in order to fight the bots. Now, 
he thinks that if people have to verify an account with a phone number and pay a dollar a year, although I think that's going to be on a trial basis, it's not going to happen now, that there will be less disinformation flowing from these accounts because there's an assumption, I guess, that bots are the ones that are spreading disinformation. But what we know, particularly from the 2020 election cycle, is that the analysis shows that, in fact, it's unwitting people who don't know what they don't know who end up doing most of the promulgation of disinformation in these networks. You can have a single compromised account or bot spreading from a single point, and then you can just leave it up to people to do all the rest of it. So it is not clear to me at all that this will actually do it. And we know that Elon Musk has been trying to stamp out the bots since before he bought Twitter, and everything he's done so far seems to have only made the problem worse. Let's leave X for a side, all right, because Meta also got a sternly worded note from the EU about disinformation, about the conflict being spread. And then so did Google, because YouTube is also being used. So basically what we can say is that all of the socials are now deeply engaged in spreading the fog of war. The other, I hate to raise this, the other issue is how motivated they are to stop any form of disinformation. <laughs> Because, frankly, it drives a hell of a lot of clicks. Yeah. And and here we are, right? I mean, that's the thing. When you now have essentially monopoly or monosopy control of social media, then where is where are the incentives? You have perverse incentives now. You have incentives for disinformation rather than information because we know, and now this is well attested in the last couple of years from research, that anger drives more engagement than puppies do. And so... If we have a period where people are unnaturally inflamed because there is a conflict and there's a lot of media associated with that conflict, that will tend to spread like, like wildfire. It will tend to increase engagement. This then leads to another problem, which is what we're starting to see now. There's a beautiful essay from a firm called Bellingcat, which basically supports open, um, open source journalism. And what they've identified, it's something that we've actually kind of seen before, but it's normally from reporters in the field who are covering wars. It's called secondary trauma. And so when you are exposed to graphic images, graphic stories, graphic sounds of conflict or traumatic situations, people can experience trauma in themselves. This is why it's called secondary trauma. And it can deeply disturb them. And there's a real concern now that people who are glued to social media right now, trying to stay current, are traumatizing themselves without really knowing. I mean, they're feeling it, but without really knowing that constant exposure to this imagery and these sounds and these stories is actually hurting them. Can we talk for a moment about the EU warning issued to Meta and to X, formerly known yeah. as Facebook and formerly known as Twitter? Uh, can you remind us of what the sanctions are? Because this is kind of an interesting test of what the EU has legislated for, obviously about content that appears in its jurisdiction. Uh, yes. And just remind us what they've said in the letter, but then second, what the possible sanctions are and are they even nibbling at the toe of the revenue driven by the very thing they're trying to regulate? So the fine could be 6% of the revenues, all right? And I think that's global revenues, Rex, not just the revenues that's coming from the EU in that case. Or they could just decide they're going to block X in the EU, which is, that would be a very 
interesting situation if that happened. I mean, I, I think that people would be able to get around it if they chose to, but it would certainly be sending a signal around this. Meta also faces the same threat. Now, uh, X's revenues have declined so significantly in the last year, basically under Musk, that while that's bad, you know, it's it's not probably more than the erosion that they've already seen in their advertiser base because of the poor management of the platform. With Meta, 6%, particularly in the EU, which is one of their core markets, would be very significant. And so it's clear that this has more of a meaning to Meta. I don't think that the EU has really waved the ban hammer at Meta to block Facebook and WhatsApp and Instagram. They clearly have done that with X. What? Is the nature of what is appearing on Meta, is it more of saying? It, well, it's disinformation, right? And in other words, it's content that should be being either checked or moderated by, because Meta does have active moderation services. And we know this because there was also a lot of research work done a few years ago about the secondary trauma that is occurring with those people because they are being exposed to the very worst of those images. So we know that Meta has that. And I guess it's the question now is, is that being overwhelmed right now? Is Meta not investing enough resources in it? Are we thinking about this problem the wrong way? It's in times like this when these systems get very heavily stressed because there is an active conflict that we really learn about what we might need to do better and what is broken right now. Hate speech, of course, another factor in all this. And did you mention yeah. Google as well being pinged? Yes. YouTube, specifically. Okay. And we know that yeah, YouTube, yeah. YouTube, exactly, because we know it radicalizes people, right? You just follow the, follow the recommendations and all of a sudden you're in Islamic State. And so the same thing's been going on in YouTube. And so you need better mitigation measures in YouTube. YouTube, I... The, Google's been less explicit about what those mitigation measures around preventing radicalism or people just sort of being able to share content that is disinformation. I don't know exactly what that is on YouTube. I can point to what I think it should be in Meta. I can point to what it used to be in X. I can't tell you what it is in YouTube. All right. Let's look at another uh, invisible war of sorts uh, going on. Um, and this one's taking the form of a cyber attack, the biggest in history at Google. So I want you to imagine all of the requests that Wikipedia gets in an entire month, right, which is around, I don't know, some number, some, some number that's in the trillions, right? And imagine getting all of that in two minutes, that's the scale of the attack that happened. And it was affecting essentially the infrastructure of the internet. So it was an attack that was intended to make the infrastructure that connects all of the states and all of the companies and all of the people to bring that down. So if you attack the parts of the internet that are technically somewhat centralized, you could then bring the entire network down. And it did this by taking up one of the protocols that we use when we're talking on web. All right. So when you hit a website, there's a couple of different ways you can do it. There's a new way called HTTP2. It's only a couple of years old. They thought it was well understood, but the attacker found a flaw in it. 
And that flaw they then use, they basically leaned into the flaw to basically jam up all of this infrastructure, trying to deal with how many requests it was getting. And the idea is if you hit any inf internet infrastructure too fast, it simply shuts down because it's too busy just dealing with the requests to do anything else. And how are they managing it? Uh, well, Google did this very nice thing like, oh, yes, we found it, da-da-da, we blocked it. But they, they do have some very interesting charts basically showing how it happened and the fact that actually it's kind of still going on. And so what they're doing now is they're getting a, a fix, a patch out for this particular HTTP2. But the thing is that now needs to be implemented across all of the Internet's infrastructure to make the Internet infrastructure resilient. But what we're seeing here is if there were ever going to be a massive, say, a war between the great powers, and part of the first round of that war would be basically to take out communications. We kind of have a peek at how that opening two minutes, think about that, just two minutes, how that opening two minutes is going to play out. It will be a distributed attack on the, on the centralized infrastructure intended to basically make it collapse and keep it down. Interestingly, this morning we had an interview with the Director General of the SIS here, um, mm. Domestic Security um, Service here, who had been in the United States with the other Five Eyes partners doing a public panel on uh, technology risks and threats for businesses, whether it's IP theft or whether it's their being used effectively as Trojan horses for, uh, for other actors. But one of the things discussed is that AI will ramp up is ramping up even further the potential um, power of these denial-of-service attacks because you're not even having to rely on my electric toaster or your iPhone <laughs> um, to run the attack, right? So the answer to that is yes. It, it, AI is a generic amplifier. It's amplifying the disinformation campaigns as well. It's, it's amplifying the attacks. All of the attacks rely on some flaw that has been undetected so far. There was another flaw this week, Catherine, that affects so Cisco is a large communications company manufactures most of the inner workings of the Internet, not all of them, but much of it. And they found a flaw there that was making basically the entire Internet vulnerable to the attack. They found it. They, I think they're in the process of now patching it. But these flaws are just a function of the fact that software is complex. And if an attacker is ahead of that complexity, more than the people who are maintaining that infrastructure, that creates the gap that an attacker will exploit. And I think the SIS and the other uh, defense-related agencies, not only do they need to have their cyber defense teams, but they actually need to be working very actively with industry to make sure that industry is not creating vulnerabilities in their normal practice. That is their exact point. The other point here yeah. is that if you haven't distributed the workings of your system and your system happens to be, <laughs> I don't know, the infrastructure <laughs> of the internet, are you thinking yeah. ahead? <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't supposed to be this way, Catherine. The internet was supposed to be completely distributed. The problem here is that there's there are certain feedback loops that happen that make it more likely that once you start to get a large number of users, certain things are going to start to get centralized. You know, back, if you think 20 years ago, there were just lots of little blogs running on lots of little websites. Now kind of everyone's on Facebook. 
And so some of that happens because of commercial reasons. Some of that happens because it's cheaper or easier. There's a bunch of reasons why things get centralized. But you're right. The more centralized something is, the more vulnerable it is to an attack. And there have been as many hacks this year as yeah. in all of last year. So that's uh, on the increase significantly. That's roughly 25, 20, 25% increase by the yeah. looks of it if it carries on at this pace. Yeah, yeah. And this is the thing. Even despite all of our attempts to cramp down on, on ransomware and malware and all of this, it seems that the criminals are still with the upper hand here. And, you know, there's got to be a lot of negotiation with us around how open we want our devices to be, which means how useful, because the more open the device is, the more useful it is in a lot of unexpected ways, but also the easier it is to exploit. And that's just going to be a continuing point of tension. Thank you, as always, Mark Pesci.